Welcome, everyone. This is a great turnout. It's not even 11 o'clock. I mean, this is just awesome. So I think, welcome, everyone, to the 2019 Midwest Socialism Conference hosted by the Party for Socialism and Liberation. My name is Stephanie. I'm going to be co-chairing this uh, panel along with Anna. It is with a great sense of urgency and determination that we have called for this all-day socialism conference. And we will absolutely make socialism a reality in the United States. Because together, we must save the planet. I mean, we're literally running out of time. Far-right groups and demagogues are rising around the world. And the US war machine of domination and plunder is pushing us toward a major power conflict with nuclear armed states. And those are just a few of the dangerous crises that the capitalist system has created for us. And we simply can't wait for the politicians and the two mainstream political parties to save us. We must take collective action. Workers and oppressed people must have real power. We must have socialism, a sustainable world of peace and justice in which everyone's needs are guaranteed. And socialism is possible in the United States. Workers already make everything run, and the economy is ripe for socialist planning and coordination. Everyone can have all their needs met and so much more. Racism, sexism, and homophobia can be defeated by a united working class fighting for the most oppressed people. And the people of the world want and need peace, not war. So to achieve socialism, we must unite and we must fight. We must have a revolution. The rulers of this country and planet will not go without a fight. And the planet must be saved by any means necessary. White supremacy must be smashed, and the US war machine must be shut down. So with that, we have a lot to cover today, and I'm super, super excited to do that with everyone here. We have people from all over the Midwest, as well as all over the country, and we should get to know each other here today, too, throughout the day. So we have a full day. We have two plenaries, one um, a special panel, and then two sets of different workshops. With that, we have a quick special um, welcome by Alexander. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining the struggle. So, socialism will win. <laughs> Thanks, Alexander. So now I'm going to bring up Anna, our co-chair, my co-chair. She's also a leading member of the Chicago branch of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. And she's also going to get us started with a talk on why she is a socialist. I'm a socialist because workers must organize and educate ourselves and our class in order to save the planet. I joined the PSL the year after I graduated high school, not knowing what socialism, capitalism, or imperialism was. I'm happy that in these years we can talk about socialism being the most Googled word. 
The Party for Socialism and Liberation made me a Latina socialist that struggles for immigrant rights, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, anti-imperialism, anti-racism, and workers' rights. I became a socialist through being involved in all these struggles and ultimately learning the issues that exist are because we live in class society where workers, poor and oppressed people do not live to thrive, but live only to survive and serve the ruling class. That is no life for me, my child, or any one of my comrades. I'm a revolutionary socialist because growing up in a white suburb with Mexican immigrant parents taught me real quick that racism, a tool of the oppressor, will continue to work if we don't fight back, build a movement, and build a party that can help other working class and oppressed people win. Waiting on Democrats or any politician will not help us win, or more importantly, win over our class for a revolution that is needed to make capitalism history. Being a socialist is a huge endeavor, but it is the only solution for real economic and political power for every worker and oppressed person. We are now gonna go into Midwest reports. The PSL is growing all across the country, including here in the Midwest. We thought it would be very important for the conference attendees to hear about what's actually happening, what we are actually doing. So we are going to have a few reports in this opening session and hear other reports throughout the day. So our first will be given by Theron from Michigan. Uh, this year in Detroit was like most other years. Uh, it was filled with a lot of struggle, historic victories, and some vicious reactionary attacks. Uh, the Detroit incinerator, which was the world's largest munici municipal incinerator, closed after three decades of continuous op opposition by Detroit residents. Uh, Detroit Pride held strong against an attack by relatively small contingent of armed fascists. And nurses in the University of Michigan health system voted overwhelmingly in favor of a strike. Uh, 4,000 nurses voted for that strike, and they won their demands on the strength of their solidarity. GM's historic pole town plant closed down after 33 years, and the announcement was accompanied by a slew of auto industry layoffs. Water quality continues to be a central issue in struggles in Detroit and Michigan more broadly, with Flint now having gone over five years, uh, 1,888 days without clean water, and water shutoffs and environmental toxins are still rampant in Detroit's neighborhoods and schools. The struggle against ICE to shut down the U.S. immigration station, which they call the Rosa Parks Federal Building, is ongoing. Earlier this year, the Department of Homeland Security set up a fake university to entrap undocumented students. Um, and they sparked outrage from a lot of Detroit's immigrant communities and advocacy organizations. The gentrification of Detroit, the foreclosure crisis that facilitates that, and the constitutionally illegal overvaluation of homes have continued to be central to working, cla working class struggle and life in the city. Um, the PSL has been active in supporting the nurses union that won the demands from Michigan earlier this year. We held a teach-in uh, on mass incarceration featuring Comrade Eugene as part of jailhouse lawyers speak week against mass incarceration. We held a protest against U.S. intervention in Venezuela outside the Cobo Center during the auto show. It was fairly well attended and it was well received by the workers who stopped to talk to us. Uh, and they thanked us for opposing U.S. war. We held a series of fairly well-attended Socialism 101 classes. We supported the Marriott strike, which was the largest strike in the history of the hotel industry. The working class in Metro Detroit is highly class conscious. Uh, it's an extremely multi multinational working class with the largest concentration of Arab peoples in the United States, a large Asian American population, and of course, a large black population. Workers at a broad range of events are highly, uh, are highly receptive to the party's messaging. 
although there's a certain amount of cynicism in the attitudes of many Detroit workers, which is understandable given the problems that are being faced. But we feel Detroit and Michigan are primed for resurgence in the socialist movement and uh, working assiduously to inject the party, our analysis, and our resources into the struggle in Detroit will be a significant step forward for the working class in this country. Our next report back will be from Sam from Indiana. Hello, comrades. Um, so like all of our branches, the Indianapolis PSL is active in diverse struggles impacting working and oppressed peoples. Um, but today, we want to highlight one particularly significant struggle for us, which was the first one we actually led in our city. So in September of last year, an ultra-reactionary member of the Indianapolis City County Council, Mike McQuillan, proposed a sit-lie ordinance, which would make it illegal to sit or lie down on city streets or sidewalks from 6 a.m. to midnight. Um, this was framed as an attempt to combat an imaginary plague of panhandlers, but it was a transparent attack on our city's homeless population, attacking their very right to be in the city. So we reached out to a local organizer who had already started uh, planning and some outreach for the upcoming meeting where the ordinance would be proposed. We worked with him to get the word out, and after discussions with him, we also started to add our own political framework to the struggle. The people of Indianapolis packed that first meeting. Our slogan, sit lie is a lie, people need homes, not fines, and no war on the poor were incredibly popular. All of our signs were claimed well before the meeting began. As we prepared for the next city council meeting where the ordinance was to be voted on, uh, we released a fact sheet to debunk McQuillan's propaganda and started collecting signatures for a petition. Our slogans were popular, but we needed more specific context and proof for why they were correct. We began a study to analyze the specific populations targeted by current panhandling laws using uh, point-in-time counts of people experiencing homelessness, uh, census dates, inmate booking records, arrest records, and court records for our county, we conducted this study, we gathered all our info, and we found that despite black residents only making up 28% of the city's population, they accounted for 55% of panhandling arrests or citations. 62% of all those arrested or cited while experiencing homelessness were black. Our policy paper included concrete proposals for addressing homelessness. We found that there are nearly 14,000 abandoned or vacant homes in Marion County where Indianapolis is located, which is more than enough to house the approximately two to 4,000 homeless people on any given day. Further, we amplified the work done by existing organizations within oppressed communities, particularly those of the black liberation struggle. The next city council meeting was overflowing with opponents of the ordinance. As people began to take the microphone to speak out against it, we heard our agitation repeated over and over again. Speaker after speaker noted the abundance of homes relative to the homeless and the racist enforcement of existing panhandling laws. By showing up en masse and speaking out, the people of Indianapolis defeated the ordinance. Um, by immediately forging relationships with established local activists in the struggle, we were able to organically provide leadership um, through our outreach and our orientation. In addition to winning in the city county council and promoting our viewpoint, we established ourselves as a serious organization in the city. Um, the gentrification struggle is not over, of course. 
um, and it is always taking on new forms. So our next Liberation Forum, this upcoming Thursday, is about the next steps in that struggle. If you're in the area, we hope to see you there. Our next report back will be from Ben from Ohio. The Party for Socialism and Liberation is relatively new in Ohio, but we've grown rapidly and have great optimism about our work helping to build a mass-based socialist movement. In Ohio, the state and local governments continue pushing far-right legislation, from the state's de facto abortion ban to Dayton's anti-homeless street safety law, which in effect gives the police the right to find people who have been forced to resort to begging in the streets. Last summer when that law was passed, we collected signatures for a petition against it while distributing food and water to those in need. Most residents we spoke with hadn't even heard of the law and were outraged. Within a couple months, hundreds of people had signed our petition. Last January, faculty members at Wright State University went on strike for better conditions. Members of the Party for Socialism and Liberation joined their picket lines where passing cars honked for the strikers day after day. After three weeks, the majority of the union's demands were met, ending the second longest public university strike in U.S. history as a shining example of the potential of organizing despite immense obstacles. In April, Gloria Lariba made three stops in Ohio on her Eyewitness Venezuela tour. At these events and at our demonstrations against U.S. aggression on Venezuela, it is always obvious that working class people are eager for alternatives to the corporate media's lies. Last month, the city of Dayton made national headlines when an organization affiliated with the Ku Klux Klan came with the intention to recruit new members. In a historic display of solidarity, a wide range of progressive organizations and community members came together to outnumber the handful of Klansmen by a ratio of 100 to 1. PSL members mobilized to be there in full force, some coming from hundreds of miles away. Two of the most popular chants were, the people united will never be defeated, and cops and the Klan go hand in hand. Class consciousness is rising in Ohio as the state apparatus makes clear which side it's on, the side of white supremacy and profits. More and more working, working class and poor people are embracing class unity, and some are even joining the Party for Socialism and Liberation and adopting a revolutionary outlook. Let's continue to build. I'm now going to read a solidarity statement from the Communist Party of Turkey. Dear comrades, on behalf of the Communist Party of Turkey, receive our revolutionary greetings. We hope that the Midwest Socialism Conference 2019 of the Party for Socialism and Liberation will contribute to your struggle for a better world and that it will equip many workers in the Midwest America for this struggle. We hope it will serve as an important step to recruit masses to the light of socialism as the only real and viable alternative to capitalism, today's rotten and barbaric order. We wish fruitful discussion among participants and success for your conference. Comrade Lee, Communist Party of Turkey, International Relations. Our next speaker is Dr. LaShawn Yvonne Latrice from Black Lives Matter Women of Faith. Good day. I bring you greetings from Black Lives Matter Women of Faith, where our founder is Carolyn Ruff. I also bring you greetings from our organization, Protect the Frontline, where we work collaboratively with organizations around the city of Chicago and outside of Chicago to deal with systemic issues that affect each and every one of us. And I also bring you greetings from the National Congress on Faith and Social Justice, where I am the regional director 
of equality affairs that have affected uh, our community, things like mass incarceration, homelessness, poverty, uh, discrimination against all groups of people. Um, I am glad to be a part of this. Uh, I am glad to have a partnership with PSL. I am super thankful to John Beecham because we've worked together for a few years and everything that we've done together, uh, we've worked collaboratively on to make changes and there have been ex effective change done. I wanna talk a few minutes about um, a situation that we have been fighting uh, in the city of Flossmoor, which is right outside of Illinois. It's where I live. Um, there was an incident that happened about a month and a half ago where um, some students at Homewood Flossmore High School decided to make fun of black people by painting their faces black. They didn't just keep it between the four of them. They rode around in a vehicle. One was underage. Uh, they were all students at HF and they had shirts on that said what school they were from. But they went and taunted people in drive-throughs and things like that and they posted this video live on Facebook. When I first received the video, I probably was one of the first people that the video got leaked to. I don't know how, but it made it to my phone. When I got it, I contacted some administrators at the school. This was a Sunday. Um, as a result of that, there was an emergency meeting call. None of the community members were allowed to be a part of that meeting. It was just the administrators at the school. They were coming together to do damage control. And their idea of damage control was leaving the public, the community, the students who had been ostracized, leaving them out because that school is about 80% African-American. So these students are in classes with these kids um, and they have to see them on a day-to-day -day basis. My son is a student there as well, he's a junior. Um, and when we saw what happened that Monday, there was a group of parents just like myself that was very concerned about how this was going to be dealt with moving forward, which there should have been an emergency meeting call for the parents as well as the students. Instead, when we got to the school, we, we received resistance. But it was that type of resistance where they told us, well, you could wait if you want to to speak to the superintendent or the principal, but they're unavailable. But you could see them all running around scampering, trying to figure out how they were going to talk to us when they finally let us back. So we agreed to wait, and we did wait for about two hours. Um, we, we, when we went into the meeting, we found out they, weren't not, they were not going to talk about this publicly. An announcement came across the PA system while we were sitting waiting, asking the children to calm down and not to be upset. And we're sorry that this in incident has happened, but we want you all to be quiet and just use this as a time of reflection. I was deeply insulted by that message, and I'm sure we weren't supposed to hear it, but we heard it. And so it made the situation more heightened. So we connected with a group of student council members at that school, and we staged a walkout. And many of you came out and participated, and I want to thank you all for that. Give yourselves a round of applause. We were, we were able to, um, to get at least 1,000 students out. Nothing has ever happened like this in the city of Flossmore. It's this little tucked away community where they're able to kind of cover things up over and over again. And, there were law enforcement officials from every neighboring suburb. I mean, you would have thought we were going to break out of jail instead of school. That's how bad it was. But we were successful in getting that walkout done. Um, what we did as a result of that, we called people to come to the next board meeting where we could address it. And I posted it live on my page at LaShawn Yvonne Latrice. You all can look at, look at it. But to see the responses from the administrators, it is a 80% 
um, well, the head superintendent and the principal are black, but everybody else in the school are not. So they were basically telling us that they're going to handle it their way and let them do it and give them their chance. And we're not finished with them yet. So I just want to say we're going to smash this white supremacy. Power to the people. Thank you. Okay. Next, I would like to introduce Josh Bergeron, who is a UIC graduate employees organization who's with UIC. All right. So I'm with the graduate employees organization at UIC. Um, it is a union representing about 1,600 uh, graduate employees, graduate workers, teaching assistants. And um, I'm here to talk to you about our victorious strike this, this past uh, spring. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, stop me if you've heard this before. Um, let's see. Our workload as grad workers uh, mixed with poverty wages, high fees, employment precarity um, places inordinate financial stressors on us, creating an epidemic of food, housing, healthcare, and mental health insecurity. Uh, many grad workers have families. Many are international students um, with visa restrictions. Many have multiple jobs. Many rely on student loans. Meanwhile, UIC, the University of Illinois at Chicago, is flourishing. They spent $100 million on a new residence hall, hundreds of thousands on annual bonuses to administrators, and have drawn up a $1 billion master plan of expansion for the next five to 10 years. Despite these gross disparities, the millionaire administrators claimed to be at a budget impasse when we met to negotiate for a new contract. But our union exists to unify us and struggle against these conditions. Beginning in March of last year, we met with the university administration to negotiate a new fair contract in good faith. This continued without progress for a year, including six months without a contract. Finally, uh, in March, we voted, 99% of us voted, um, to approve a strike, so overwhelming um, support for the strike. Um, we withheld our labor from campus life. We engaged in daily pickets, frequent rallies, interruptions, bargaining sessions, and other events. While on strike, we received an outpouring of support from dozens of departments and organizations across campus, including a newly formed undergrad student union, and also from the faculty union, who were also negotiating for a new contract. Um, we also received support from uh, dozens of unions and several progressive politicians across the city and state, including the Chicago Teachers Union, um, dozens of educator unions from across the country. The striking Chicago Symphony Orchestra played a free concert for us at a rally. Delivery workers with the Teamsters refused to cross our pickets to deliver packages. And even Bernie Sanders tweeted his support for our strike. Many organizations and unions saw our struggles as intricately connected to their own and joined our pickets in solidarity. As our support base grew, so did our resolve. The university administration engaged in illegal intimidation tactics, gaslighting, and attempted to recruit scabs to prevent interruptions in campus life. But despite their assurances that the semester would continue as normal, by week three of our strike, we had shut down nearly 1,000 classes. Despite their attempts to isolate and starve us out, the administrators revealed themselves to be completely divorced from reality. Their negotiators became more malleable, they made more concessions, they took us more seriously. Finally, on April 5th, after three weeks of striking and 31 bargaining sessions, we won our new contract. We won the, the largest raise in our union's history, significant fee relief, particularly for international students who make up half of our membership. We won a better health care waiver and dependent care coverage for the first time, transparent hiring guidelines, and non-discrimination protections for citizenship status and arrest record. 
None of this was on the table until we went on strike. And when our strike was won, we continued the struggle by joining the pickets for striking comrades around the city. When we fight, we win, and when we win, we multiply. One of the vital lessons I learned on the pickets is how a strike throws into stark contrast the distinct class interests between the bosses and the workers that mainstream American political culture attempts to paper over. Workers begin to recognize themselves as a class at odds with their exploiters. The manipulative workplace mantras of we're a family and we value you melt away as the bosses turn to intimidation, condescension, and threats. Otherwise, apolitical folks begin to see who produces value and who reaps the wealth. The lines of struggle become clear as other unions express their solidarity with you while the managers and executives reveal how little they actually care for your well-being. The union struggle and the strike is a transformative experience. It's radicalizing, clarifying, and energizing. Higher education, all education, is a public good. It should not just be for the wealthy few. UIC public, uh, publicly prides itself on its diverse working class student body, but when it does not treat its workers with dignity and pay them a living wage, it creates an environment where the most marginalized cannot thrive. And our working conditions are our students' learning conditions. This like, exploitation creates a ripple effect that exacerbates structural inequalities, doing a fundamental disservice to our community. But there's a nationwide fight back for the common good against neoliberal austerity and the corporatization of public services, particularly among educators at all levels. Our struggle was energized by that strike wave, and our victory has helped to further mobilize workers across the city and beyond. This is the year of the working class. Our next speaker is Ali Hassan from People United Against Oppression. Hello, everyone. My name is Ali Hassan. I'm a coordinator with People United Against Oppression. And um, I've been asked today to talk about the uh, ongoing crisis with Iran today. And before I do that, I'd like to thank uh, Answer Coalition for the opportunity to speak here. Um, it's a great topic. It's going to be a challenge to cover it in, the, in a few minutes and do justice with the topic at the same time. Um, but basically, if you've been reading the news lately, it's all about Iran these days, right? Crisis over crisis over crisis. And really, if you delve into the details of it, this is a manufactured crisis. You know, we, if you go, if you find out there was a, um, an oil ship tanker that was basically attacked in Iranian waters when uh, and it claimed to be owned by a Japanese uh, company, well, they, they, they didn't really connect the dots that basically what happened was when they claimed that there was a mine that basically went off in Iranian waters that caused the explosion on, the, on, the, on that tanker. Well, the Japanese company owners basically said, no, we actually saw things flying towards us that caused this. This is a manufactured crisis, right? Now, if you look at the next thing that happened two days ago, we had a drone uh, that was brought down uh, in, Iranian, in Iranian airspace. First of all, why is a spy plane in a foreign country? That's the first question that comes, right? I mean, you and I, we all live in houses, right? If someone puts a bug or a camera in my house and I take it out, is that my problem or is that whoever put the bug's problem, right? So, I mean, if you really look at it, it's just mind-boggling how stupid. Our, <laughs> and I have to use that word. I'm sorry. I, I, I'd rather use something else, but, you know, I try to keep my uh, speeches PG-13. But, <laughs> but if you really look at it, it's just mind-boggling how stupid they think we are. Right? I mean, you know, you have a spy plane, a drone, flying in a foreign country's uh, airspace. It is brought down, and all of a sudden, President Trump is, like, ordering a, a, an attack. 
And then at the last minute, he pulls back because someone, probably someone, and there are very few people in his uh, close circle told him, that, hey, you know what? It's not a good idea. You were spying on them, right? <laughs> so he here's what the real problem is, right? Yes, Iran is literally uh, basically um, the focus of, this, if, of, of the last few days, and I should say probably most of, of Trump's tenure, right? As soon as he comes in, what is the first thing that he does? Pulls out the Iran deal, right? That's escalation on our part, not on Iran's part, right? But you know what? I can go on and on and talk about Trump, and I'm sure all of us can, right? Um, that's a unifying factor these days, right? But at the same time, you have to look at Iran, right? The problem isn't a manufactured crisis of Trump. This is a manufactured crisis of our foreign policy, right? I mean, this, this chaos has been going on for 50, 60 years now. Right? I mean, if you remember back, uh, you know, in the 2016 elections, Bernie Sanders came up with the, uh, the comment on, you know, yeah, do you remember the CIA coup in 1953? Right? Do you all remember that in the town hall, uh, in, in the uh, debates? Well, that's actually true. We did do a coup in Iran in 1953 to basically depose the, the elected prime minister, Mossadegh, in, uh, at that time. And what, why, why did we do this? Why did we go through the, uh, the effort of uh, putting a coup into a country? Well, because he was nationalizing big oil, uh, nationalizing the oil industry in the country at the time, right? For the longest time, we've been supporting, and you know what? We've been supporting a lot of bad people throughout the world. Iran's history supports that statement. <laughs> there was an Iranian dictator, the Shah of Iran, that ruled there for 30 years. He ruled there for 30 years because of us. We installed him there, we made sure that he was there, and he was a dictator, right? I mean, um, if I, I can talk about the Shah of Iran for a long time now, but I'm just gonna make it easy on everyone. He was the MBS of the 50s, 60s, and the 70s. Mohammed bin Salman, right? He, he wasn't a bone-cutting Mohammed bin Salman, but he did everything else. <laughs> Tortured his people, everything, he had his own, uh, police force called the Savak that basically went against uh, people like Jamal Khashoggi's of the time and basically uh, made sure that he, his rule was maintained, of course, with our help. Now, the question is, right, I mean, you have a brutal dictator. We're the leaders of the free world. What happens when the people of Iran gain their, uh, uh, rebel against the government and they, they introduce a revolution in 1979? Oh, okay. Uh, in 1979, what do we do? We basically do not support the people. We basically enable a Saddam Hussein, a, 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 an enemy on the, in Iraq, and we support him for eight years. To what? To cripple again that, that government. So again, I can go on and on and on. I have two minutes, so I'm gonna wrap, wrap this up. But basically, one point I do wanna make is, you always have to scratch your head and say, why Iran? Right? Why, why is Iran the enemy right now? And why has Iran always been the enemy? Well, the first thing that people will say on Fox, you, you'll hear this all the time, is, oh, they were part of the hostage crisis. You know, the 444-day standoff that happened back in 1979. Well, little did we know that if Iran's hostage crisis was so bad, why didn't as soon as President uh, Reagan took office? <laughs> well, there are rumors that President Reagan actually attempted to delay 
the uh, the the hostage crisis t- uh, resolution because it would serve his his uh, uh, um, uh, serve his presidency well, right? And there are, I mean, you can read about that for on and on. The second thing is, and this is very important. The first thing they'll say is, oh, how can you support a country that says Mark Bar America, right? I mean, this is this was a rally cry back in the '70s revolution, right? And what that means is, if you translate, it says death to America, right? Now, let me clarify that. Death to America does not mean death to us, right? It means death to American foreign policy, right? And you can understand this, right? All of us here are in, in, we're in agreement with that, right? I mean, our foreign policies have definitely affected foreign countries, foreign people's livelihoods, and so forth. And I'm going to now just wrap my speech up with that closing comment, right? Our country right now spent $220 million on a surveillance drone in Iran. We didn't spend $220 million in Flint, right? We have, Puerto Rico is still reeling. We have money to spend overseas. We need people, we need money for us right now, right? I mean, our country is literally facing an existential crisis. So it's very important for us to basically pull away from what we're, be, we're learning from mainstream media. Pull away what the common rhetoric is, right? I mean, talking politics, oh, no, 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 that's not good, right? That's not good. You, you talk about politics in office, and all of a sudden people will start, you know, moving away from you and so forth. We have to have those tough conversations. Our country, we are going to be doing a disservice to our kids, to our grandchildren, or whatever, if we do not change the course that our country is in right now. Regime change does not help anyone except for the 1%. Right? It's not helping us. Our lives are getting worse because the people at the top are making too much money. Right? So with that said, I'm going to wrap up my speech. Hopefully I haven't gone over my uh, time limit. And uh, PSL is a great body. Join it as, much as, as soon as possible if you haven't. And if, if there's any question that you, you know, you'd like to ask, please, I'm uh, part, with People United Against Oppression. I've worked with PSL for a long time. I'd be more than happy to, to answer any questions if possible. All right, thank you. Our next speaker is Kayla Ramirez from PSL Ohio, and their talk is on why I joined the PSL. Hello. Hello. I'm from Ohio, part of my, the Miami Valley branch. My name is Kayla Ramirez, and I come from an immigrant family. My father was born and raised in Mexico, and growing up, we had to keep everything about our lives secret in fear that my father would be sent back to Mexico with no one to support us. In 2006, the sheriff of Butler County, Richard K. Jones, started to target Hispanic immigrants in Butler County, especially a place in Hamilton where I'm from, known as Little Mexico. He would go to construction sites where the majority of workers were Latino and start arresting them with no charges to give. I was six years old at the time, and thankfully my father was never caught. But this did strike fear into the hearts of not only my family, but of other Latino families in the area. This was my first experience, the anti-immigration and racist views that capitalist America still holds up to today. My first proper introduction to socialism was because of my friend, Benjamin Timister. It was during the 2016 election and we were both in junior year of high school. Ben would start to tell me about his recent acquired knowledge of socialism, and I would begin to unearth the lies that had been fed to me since birth. The world of socialism changed my entire perspective of things 
And I knew that we needed a revolution, but I didn't know how we would be able to do that. I was soon introduced to the PSL by that same friend. I remember going onto the website to do some more digging and came upon a video called Why I Joined the PSL. And little did I know that two years later I would be in Chicago at the Midwest Conference giving my own take on it. <laughs> I would listen to the comrades in the video talk about their experiences with unionization of the party and how devoted they are to fight against the oppression of all workers. I signed up and a couple months later, I started my candidacy classes, which I completed in November of 2018. Under the name of the PSL, some comrades and myself attended one of the Families Belong Together rally in Cincinnati, Ohio. And hundreds around the area showed up. The support and outcry for change was so strong and comforting compared back to 2006. In Washington, DC, thousands of people showed up to fight against Trump's planned coup in Venezuela. The amount of people showing up to these events with arms full of love and disdain against what the American government is doing shows that revolution isn't something we just talk about in the PSL, but it's something that we're making a reality. I joined the PSL because I come from a working immigrant family, because I am a Latina woman, because I am a student, because I want to be a part of a group that fights against capitalism for the people of color, the LGBT community, for women, and for immigrants. I want to be in a group that fights for free healthcare, free education, and the right to a job. I joined the PSL because I want socialism and I'm going to fight for it. Thank you. All right, and now for our keynote speakers. First, I will introduce Eugene Perrier, host of By Any Means Necessary, also author of Shackled and Chained, Mass Incarceration in Capitalist America. Eugene is a PSL member from Baltimore. Welcome, Eugene. Stephanie, uh, I, I really appreciate it, and, and thank you to all the comrades here in the Midwest who asked me to attend. I think this is my third consecutive Midwest Socialism Conference, so this is like part of my yearly agenda. Uh, my own view is it gets better every year. You, you have your own thoughts, but uh, it's a great crowd. I'm very happy to be here, and I'm always very happy to be in Chicago. I see we're very tight with the time. We got 15 minutes, so I'm going to try to hit a lot here or a little bit. We'll see. Uh, but I think in the context of, of all the great uh, you know, plenaries and workshops and things that we have going on, all of this should be carrying over. It, obviously, this is uh, it's always an important time to talk about the fight against white supremacy. But I think in the context of this weekend where we're in the shadow of we don't know exactly how it's going to look, but the possibility of these mass uh, immigrant raids by ICE that could actually start this weekend, could start Monday, could be millions of people. Uh, obviously, I think it brings this issue a lot closer to our, to, you know, to, to our heart in many ways and also our struggle. You know, it, I think immigration is an important issue to look at this, it, it, the role that white supremacy plays. And I think it was mentioned earlier that it's a tool, right? It's a tool of the, working, of the ruling class to divide workers. I think it's, a, it's an easy thing to say, and it's sometimes a harder thing to conceptualize, but I think the struggle in, in, uh, of, of immigrants for their own rights and to demonize them really speaks to this so heavily because when you really look at what's happening, um, scratch the surface a little bit. What are Republicans who are sort of leading this fight, what is their real plan around immigrant workers? Now it's not actually to kick everyone out of the country, but what it is designed to do is completely redefine and reorient the way immigration does work and to scare people into the shadows. And obviously that makes quite a bit of difference in terms of profit. So when you look at some of the things they're proposing, 
uh, you know, their attitude is, well, no, 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 it's not that we don't want anyone to come into the country. We just want them to come into work and leave. And all the Republican plans that exist around how do we re, you know, you see merit-based immigration, that's their whole thing. That's what Trump was saying in his kickoff rally. We want it to be by merit. Well, what does that actually really mean? It means ranking people by their actual worth to certain industries. So they want to bring in people from South Asia because the IT industry is looking to pay people far less than they probably would have to pay someone who may be a quote-unquote native-born uh, American. They're already doing that. There's allegedly a crisis in STEM, right? You've heard of that, every college, every school. That's actually false. There's actually a huge number of people who graduate in STEM fields all the time. There's a glut already, but they've created this false crisis in order to be able to bring in a large subset of people that they can pay a lot less money. Uh, it's the same thing with agricultural laborers. They want to drastically expand uh, the guest worker programs as they are, the H-2 visa, to bring in more people to come in, do work, and then to kick them out of the country, uh, but in ultimately to be able to pay them low wages, and so they have no worker rights at all. That's another thing about guest worker programs. They bring you in, you don't have the ability to unionize, you don't have the ability to make workers' comp claims, uh, all of these different things. Certainly you don't have to pay the same payroll taxes and other things into Social Security, and so on and so forth, and you can see how that starts to add up to a lot of money. And the flip side of that, of course, is scaring people into the shadows, which is the same thing. If you're afraid to come forward to assert your rights because you don't want to be you know, brutalized, jailed, removed from the country, and it's not just deportation. We talk so much about deportation, which is crucial, but we have to think about the millions of, uh, really hundreds of thousands, millions over time of immigrants who languish for years in immigration detention while they're waiting for their cases. Uh, and, and something like, I, I don't have the stat on top of my head, someone is going to have to you know, look this up for me, so don't quote me on this, but, you know, I don't know, maybe do quote me, but fact check me. Like a third of cases when they get resolved, it turns out that the person wasn't even uh, in the country, quote unquote, illegally, uh, whatever that even means in the first place. Uh, you know, you, if, I, if I invest a million dollars in Mexico, I'm a great businessman, but if I'm a Mexican and I come here to work, somehow I'm an illegal immigrant. Doesn't make any sense to me, no human being's illegal. But in their parlance, uh, you know, that's the system. And I think that it's extremely brutal in so many different ways on the whole chain from the arrest process uh, to the deportation proceedings. But when people are scared, they don't come forward. So, you know, look at one of the things the Trump administration is doing now below the radar. Unfortunately, the media can only cover Russia or something Russia-related uh, or something to do with the campaign, so you may not have heard this. So in meat processing plants like chicken, pork, or whatever, where they cut it up, package it, and so on and so forth, there are, you know, everything comes along a line, right? And it's a real dangerous job, people who know about this. A lot of it involves, like, these giant knives, actually, in chicken plants, where you have to just cut, like, hundreds and hundreds of chickens uh, every few minutes uh, in the course of it. So people, it's one of the jobs people, like, lose the most fingers, arms, uh, musculoskeletal injuries, they call them. So obviously, line speed is critical, because the faster it goes, the more likely you're going to make a mistake, the more likely you're going to lose a limb or die. Uh, and there's government regulations around line speeds. So now the Trump administration is trying to eliminate all line speeds uh, in pork processing and chicken processing, despite the fact that their own agencies are saying that this is extremely dangerous and will kill many people. But who are the majority of people who are starting to work and have over the past few years in these plants? It's primarily undocumented people, many of them from Ethiopia, from Somalia, from Eritrea, uh, and people who obviously are in a very precarious circumstance, not just from the immigration piece, but also the anti-terrorism laws that target their communities even heavier, so they bring the double, uh, sort of double-edged uh, sword against them. And I think what you can see there is if you're afraid to come forward, you're not going to complain about the fact that this is a completely unsafe workplace where anyone could die at any time and there's no recourse. That's obviously very good for Tyson Chicken, even though it's 
bad for workers. And so that's what I think just one small example uh, or subset of examples that we can have that I think speak to the idea of how white supremacy and racism is a tool to divide people because what does it mean to have all this anti-immigrant rhetoric? It creates the entire uh, agenda, the entire sort of uh, worldview that allow these things to go forward because people are demonizing immigrants. We got to get them all out of here. They're stealing our jobs. We have to, you know, they're bringing crime into the country. Also not true. Uh, completely factually false in every way. In fact, there's at least one study that says that uh, not only does it have no effect, which is what they said for years, but that now it actually seems that crime goes down in places that have more people who are coming from different countries, more immigrants who are coming in. So not only is it not true, but it's 180 degrees. But when you have that, then people aren't going to stand up against raids. They're not going to see it as wrong. They're going to see them as the enemy, and it makes it easier to push people into the shadows. It makes it easier to change around labor laws to make it harder and harder for people to make a living and for capitalists to be able to treat people even worse. So there's your connection right there between racism and white supremacy and the ruling class and the policies that they pursue. You know, one other element of this too that I think is important right now, and you know, I don't like to talk forever about you know, what Trump is doing, but I think to some degrees he's, it, he's the president, right? The CEO of the US government, and that's sort of the chief seat for managing the capitalist affairs of the nation. And some of the things he's doing I think are setting the tone is you know, even more insidiously in many ways, white supremacy is also a tool used to divide different groups of people of color. And this is actually becoming very central to the Trump administration policy. Uh, you know, we saw it in his speech last week. He spent a lot of time talking about, or not a lot, but a decent amount of time, more than he normally does, talking about how Democrats have destroyed the black community and how they allowed drugs and immigrants to come in to take the jobs and destroy the communities and so on and so forth. That's his line. Um, now, there is some kernel of truth that Democrats are responsible to some degree for the unbelievable social situations in so many black communities around the country, deindustrialization, mass incarceration, and so on and so forth. So it's not to let them off the hook. I think we could just look at you know, Joe Biden's history, among others, to see it. Uh, but obviously, that's not what Trump is talking about, right? He's basically saying black people, even though it might seem like I'm a racist with all these things I'm saying about immigrants, I'm really for you, I'm just not for them, and that we should unite against them as Americans because this is what's going to improve our livelihood and our lifestyle. You know, spoiler alert, that isn't what's going to happen. Uh, there's actually no proposals by the Trump administration of any substance to bring large numbers of jobs to people. I even saw last week they're trying to give $1.9 billion uh, to these companies in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia to make these plastic plants, right? They're going to build these giant underground uh, storage tanks for ethylene, which is like a massive cancerous chemical. Uh, and so I'm reading it and I'm thinking like, oh, like, like lots of jobs is going to be 10,000 jobs, 20,000 jobs. Well, the one plant they've built so far in Pennsylvania, it's 600 permanent jobs. And it's just like, okay, well, there you go right there, right? Um, but when people aren't thinking about that, they're thinking about who they're not thinking about the capitalist at the enemy. They're thinking about some other person in a competition over scarcity. Then it's easy to sort of elide the real issues and to move past the real issues and what's really, in fact, going on. And the fact that they're not doing anything for workers. This entire thing, whether it be immigration, you know, whether it be this appeal to the black community, all of it is just designed to reinforce neoliberal policies that aren't doing anything for working people at all, but lowering salaries. Uh, making working conditions much worse, 
uh, certainly making uh, uh, just the overall social conditions of how people live significantly worse. Look at the cost of living in almost every major city and even most small cities. I mean, we talk about gentrification in big cities, but even many small towns. I was in Morgantown, West Virginia two years ago, and people there were like, gentrification is kicking us all out. Most people wouldn't think about that, uh, but obviously it's happening. So you see all these things that are happening. So how do you keep people focused in some other direction than the actual reason for why their lives are being completely destroyed? You have to find some way to make them focused on someone else. And I think that's why white supremacy is so pernicious. I mean, it's pernicious in many other ways. It's completely false. Uh, it's dehumanizing. But in a very practical sense, it becomes a tool that prevents people's lives from coming together by keeping people from uniting themselves to fight back. And so I think that our task here is critically important on this issue. Without class unity, there will be no real progress. As long as people are fighting amongst themselves for a small amount of crumbs rather than fighting for all the food on the table together, uh, we're all gonna continue to lose out. I think that's consistently clear. I think it's been clear over time in the history of this country, that's for sure. Uh, and I think now is a moment where we have a, a political regime that has decided to sort of switch strategies, right? Because you had a while there, you know, the Obama administration, other places, where they tried to make like diversity a good thing, a cool thing, we're all for that. We're not really doing anything for anyone, but we're all for everyone, you know? Uh, we want everyone to be out here as president, but we don't want you to have, you know, affordable housing. But be that as it may, it's now, I think, a, a switch back to a more just hammer-like approach. We're gonna try to crush people under our thumb. We're gonna make conditions as bad as possible, and the only way to really address that issue is to find a way to not only divide people, but also control people. So in the context of mass incarceration, you know, that's why you have all these Republicans who are like, yeah, yeah, we should reduce the number of people, and some Democrats who are for mass incarceration. Let's reduce the number of people in prison. Like, let, that's absolutely, it's a problem, it's a scandal, some of these prisons. But what are their real proposals to turn society into a prison? More cameras, facial recognition software, predictive policing and algorithms, the rise of what they now call e-carceration, uh, but you know, uh, uh, you know, ankle monitors and all that kind of stuff, and bringing all of that into one thing so that, yes, maybe there'll be fewer people in prison, but society overall will be much more coercively controlled and our lives will be much more surveilled and shaped at the outset, uh, almost in like a minority report sort of pre-crime way that assumes we're criminals, quote unquote criminals uh, ahead of even doing anything and shapes everything to, to trap us in these small boxes. And I think that this is a dangerous time, but also a hopeful time. And I'll just maybe quickly end on this. I mean, I don't think this is really the first time we've been in a situation like this. I mean, you know, after, you know, the Civil War had a big impact on white supremacy because of black soldiers. And the impact of black people fighting in the Civil War seriously affected uh, what white people thought about black people, quite frankly. You know, there's a, I don't even know where you could find this, just Google it on the internet, but Harper's Magazine, which people may know, which was one of the main illustrated magazines back then, I once saw someone do a really interesting panel from 1859 to 1865 of representations of black people, and it went from like the most racist you could imagine uh, to, you know, realistic, right? Uh, and real, and respectful, and understanding of the role that had been played there uh, in so many different ways. But, you know, anyway, long story short, uh, the rise of Jim Crow, the so-called redemption, that was certainly not really good for white people either, right? Like all it really did was reinforce the plantation style economy and try to substitute, you know, a decent standard of living for small white farmers for sort of a psychological, cultural supremacy reality. 
And, you know, certainly we know that that went on to happen. But before sort of what we know about Jim Crow, there was a massive titanic struggle of black and white farmers, mainly in the South and the Midwest, called the populist movement, that was so dangerous that the government had to basically eliminate all of its laws to drown it in blood. Uh, you look at the 1892 gubernatorial election in Alabama, it's just like an outright war uh, plus stuffed ballots, right? That's how scared they were that they went into complete extra-legal paramilitary warfare against working-class people because they were uniting you know, on the basis of class, on the basis of who they were, on the basis of their interests being against monopoly capitalists, not being white, not being black, not being small farmers or, or workers in, in, in cities like Chicago, but being for an eight-hour day, being for, you, well, I don't want to get too deep into it because it's esoteric, but good things for farmers uh, at, at the time, and they had, to, they had to crush it brutally, brutally. And so I think in our history, we have seen that these kind of moments where the capitalist class is refusing to provide any sort of benefits for anyone, they're launching the most vicious attacks on everyone, and they're using the most disgusting racism to divide people, that when we have forces like the PSL, like progressive political forces, that can bring to the forefront the reality that united we can win more than we ever could in any way, shape, or form divided, that we can build big, bold, world-changing struggles that can turn this country around, that can turn this world around, because that's what it's about now. You look at climate change, that can turn this world around so that we're talking about the needs of people, not the needs of profit and corporations. So I'll stop there, and I thank you very much, comrades, and I'm looking forward to the rest of the day. Our next speaker is Natalie Harizi, uh, editor of Breaking the Chains magazine, a socialist perspective on women's liberation. Natalie was the 2018 socialist candidate for California Insurance Commissioner who received over 300,000 votes. And Natalie is a member, a PSL member from San Francisco. Thank you. It's so nice to see everyone here. And it's so exciting to have heard from everyone so far. I'm all pumped up, ready to fight for socialism. Um, so this may come as a shock to the people of this room, but climate change is here. It's happening. The global temperatures are rising. The ice coverage at the poles is, is declining. Sea levels are also rising at much faster rates, and species are going extinct at previously unrecorded rates. And those are just some of the things that characterize global climate change. Even if somehow miraculously, like maybe we took power, we stopped, all carbon emissions tomorrow, a certain level of that global warming is already locked in. It's happening. Although it can also be reversed and it can be stopped quite quickly. And we should keep that in mind as we continue the discussion today. But the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has said that the window for that action to make that change is a little less than 12 years now. It's a very short period of time. <laughs> uh, my daughter's three. She'll be 15 by the time we have to change this around. Scientists can't say for certain how it's all going to play out over those 12 years because they're actually dealing with incredibly intricate forces in the climate. But they can say what's happening right now and they can put forward the solutions for the, the irreversible changes that we've seen in our lifetimes and will continue to see if we don't make these changes. The amazing thing right now, and we witnessed it just yesterday, I don't know, maybe, did people see the news from Germany and the protests yesterday? So there were 40,000 people who came out yesterday in a pretty, not a big town in Germany, in Acton, but it's right next to one of their largest mines. And they'll be blocking that mine over this entire weekend. And it's part of an ongoing set of protests across Europe that happen almost every Friday, 
led by young people, by students primarily, that are taking direct action, that are coming out in the tens of thousands and then shutting down areas of contamination and toxicity to bring uh, notice and advisement to this issue of climate change. Um, the Yellow Vest protests in, in France are also reminiscent of the struggle that's building, the Extinction Rebellion in the UK, and there's a huge climate strike building across the world coming out of Latin America, actually, for the fall that we're hoping people will participate in in the United States as well. So the people know it. We obviously know it because I didn't surprise you at the beginning of my talk. <laughs> and the politicians also know it. People know this. It is a scientific consensus of what is happening. But the politicians aren't doing anything. And I was, I was actually hoping to kind of share the video of Dianne Feinstein. How many people have seen this video? Yes. OK, so a decent number of people have seen it. And if you haven't seen it, I recommend watching it. I sort of read about it. It's not the same. Like when you watch this video of this politician from California, so she was mayor of where I come from for a very long time, and now she's a senator, along with the other clique of wealthy people who sit in the Senate and do nothing but obstruct justice. Um, and she is confronted by a group of young people, very young people. Some of them look like they're maybe seven, and others are older, they're 16 or 17. And they're asking for her to support the New Green Deal and to recognize the issues with climate change. And she is patronizing, rude, she interrupts them, she tells them they don't know what they're talking about. When one of the younger people says, but we are your constituents, we are your voters, she says, how old are you? And the girl says, well, I'm 16. Well, then you didn't vote for me. And it ends with her saying, I actually know much more than everyone else in this room. And here's my proposal. And the New Green Deal will never pass. And this is how the politicians in capitalist America treat the issue of climate change. They ignore the movement. They ignore the solutions. They ignore the plans for action. And then they talk about what's feasible under the capitalist society. And it's not just in the United States. I don't know if everyone saw yesterday, but this um, politician in, in London, Mark Fields, just grabbed a protester, pushed her, and then took her by the back of the neck and walked her out of a dinner so that the climate, the climate change protesters couldn't have their own speech about what, what real action could be taken. Um, so, so why? Why are these politicians so adamant? And these aren't like Republican politicians. I mean, they're very adamant about it. But, but even the most liberal politicians aren't taking up the real cause to action. Because it's, a, it's an important question, why? All of the science is there. We know the research, we know the data analysis, the solutions are even out there. They've been developed. They technologically were ready for the solutions. Some of them are out of this world insane, like the idea that like, just trading carbon on the market might work. That we're not talking about. We're talking about real, actual, sustainable practices that exist and are not highly in use, but they exist and have been researched. So again, why? Why aren't they doing it? It's because the capitalist system itself, the structure of the system and the way the system has developed is the obstacle to taking the change we need now to save the planet. And of course, the people who live on the planet need that to be saved. The capitalist mode of production can actually be blamed for the rapid escalation of global warming. So we know where to place the blame. We know why. Everyone uses the pre-1950 uh, climate, climate in research is because that's when it all blew up and out of control and when they ignored everything about environmental protections and environmental limits to just ravage the earth in the interest of profit. 
But not only that, do they constantly, this constant drive for the increase of profit, push the capitalists in absolute chaos to just develop wherever they can to dump their toxicity, but also they constantly take advantage of the structural and institutional racism of the society to dump toxicity and move their operations where they think they'll get the least amount of resistance, which over and over again has been proven untrue to them. And all we have to point to is the fierce resistance at Standing Rock. But that example is one of many examples. In my hometown, the example of Bayview Hunters Point and the struggle that's gone on there for not for years, but for decades against what's been done to the black community in San Francisco, or in Richmond, California, or here in Chicago, I was just reading recently about air pollution studies, about what's happening to the south side of Chicago in terms of the air that people have to breathe. Over and over and over again, you see that the structure of the society is such that environmental toxicity and degradation is carried out over and over and over again, and it's targeted to the most oppressed sectors of society. So the the system bears the responsibility, but it is also the greatest obstacle to changing the situation, to confronting it with a clear plan of action. That is because there is a deep structural shift that needs to happen in order for the planet to survive. And the structures of capitalism, the way that it's designed, the courts exist in the interest of the people who are making profits off that environmental destruction. So sometimes we win things over the course of the mass movements, and we can talk about this in so many different ways, but we also won the Clean Air Act. We won environmental protections, and those have been chipped away at and chipped away at. Now Trump is sort of taking a bat and just trying to destroy them completely. Um, but we're at, a, we're at a point where every little gain we make isn't enough at this point, and even that is chipped away at. So the system-based solutions that we need are not going to happen under the capitalist system. The other point that is important to make about why the system is such an obstacle and why the deep shift needs to come from beyond the system is how clearly tied the economy and the system of production is to oil and to fossil fuels. Since World War II, the dollar has really been tied to oil. That's what it's tied to. And every product has it, every industry relies on it in some way or another. So that's why there's a lot, even though there's some, you know, like Elon Musk will sometimes make like a big name for himself by talking about, he's so horrifying. But anyway, <laughs> we're talking about, you know, how climate change is good for the economy. And there are sectors of the ruling class that believe that. But as a whole, they pretty much understand the challenge to their economic survival that is posed by any real action, systemic action on climate change. Um, but, as I said, we're sort of far past those incremental changes anyway, right? We're past the point where, like, they can take 20 years to argue about whether the New Green Deal is economically feasible or not, and there's a lot in there that wouldn't work out because it's based on the ideas of private, private ownership. It's based on using private investment to make these changes, and it just won't work. It's not going to work the way we need it to work. So what's the question then? The finite resources of the planet, the forests and the oceans that provide the atmosphere that maintain life, that's what they do. They can't recover fast enough for us to continue this way. The world needs a complete uprooting 
of the production and consumption-based system to one that's based on meeting the needs of human people, humanity and the planet at the same time. Both the people and the planet, we need a revolution. And that sounds huge. It has always sounded huge. It's even sounded huge to revolutionaries who believe it's possible and work for it. But then, as in the case of the Russian Revolution, when Lenin just before the revolution said, I'm not going to see it. I'm not going to see the revolution in my lifetime. He did see it. Because that change can happen so quickly. And the movement that we're seeing happening, 40,000 people, young people organizing in Germany, young people here willing to walk into Dianne Feinstein's office. And it was a very uncomfortable situation for those young people. But you could see that they were like, wait a second. Wait a second. This is how we're being treated. And then other people saw it. This is how the capitalist system treats even the youngest of people who are willing to fight for their own survival and for the survival of the planet. And so we see in that the beginning of the movements. And we don't know if the movement is going to come based on climate change or if it's going to become uh, based on the struggle against white supremacy or where that flashpoint is going to come. But we know we need it. We need to be prepared because it is a revolution that is necessary to make these very deep changes in society that the planet requires for its survival. How much time do I have? OK, I see it. OK. So I want to talk a little bit about what that might look like. How do we see this playing out? Like, obviously, we can't put out a blueprint and say, hey, this is how the revolution is going to happen, and this is what socialism is going to look like in the United States. We're not going to do that. But it is important to think about it, to think about if we were in that position of power and we had the ability to carry out a program, what would it look like? What does it mean when we say all these words about restructuring the economy or asking for a planned economy? Because that's what we need. We need that planning that doesn't happen in capitalism because it's everyone for themselves. Well, not, well it is not us, right? <laughs> It's the owners of the corporations. Each corporation is fighting for its own rate of profit, and it creates huge amounts of chaos. We want the opposite. We want a planned economy that is capable of making rational decisions based on the needs of the planet and of humanity, the majority of us. The science and technology are all there to immediately shift to powering the world on wind, water, and solar. That's something we could do almost immediately. Sustainable agricultural practices exist to protect the soil and adapt to drier conditions that are already happening. We're seeing that in my state for sure as the wildfires are out of control. Just the waste of resources, of energy, of food, just that sort of high waste that exists under capitalism because those products don't exist to feed people. This society doesn't make food so you can eat. It makes food so someone else can make profit if you can afford to buy the food that's produced. And if you can't, they dump it. They don't give it to people who are hungry. They let it rot on the side of the fields. Literally, there are mounds rotting in the state of California and across the Midwest. As dairy farms close across the Midwest as well, and small farmers are pushed out, this is the situation that we face. So we have kind of a plan. And what would it look like? What does an ecological socialist transformation of society entail? First, it means ending all fossil fuel and nuclear energy use. Yes. It means creating a distributed energy infrastructure 
based on the renewable resources that I mentioned earlier, connected through a smart grid. It means rebuilding cities where we need to, to provide jobs, education, healthcare, cultural and recreation centers within walking and biking distance of the places where people live, of restructuring public transportation so that it exists and is accessible and free for all and also sustainable. It means retrofitting existing buildings and building new buildings that are net zero energy. All of this is possible, completely possible. It means rebuilding rural communities to have equal access to all services because we have very unequal, oh good, unequal access. It means zero emission public transit and high speed rail. It means restoring and protecting natural lands, forests, habitats to increase carbon cap capture capacity and species diversity that then aid in wildfire prevention. It means restoring coastal wetlands and reefs. It means protecting populations that are vulnerable to sea level rising, which doesn't happen right now. As the sea levels rise, capitalism just says, all right, sorry. Sorry if you've lost your home to a wildfire. Sorry if the sea levels are rising. There's nothing we can really do about it. It means restructuring the production and consumption system based on need rather than profit. Restructuring the agricultural system and restoring the oceans and coral reefs. Those are the specific plans of action that are part of what a socialist program needs. But none of this can happen without us. Unless we build that movement, unless we speak out, unless we join with those young people who are willing to walk into those offices and sit down in front of those minds and really build that movement with the consciousness of socialism and fighting for that revolution. So please join us. Thank you. Our next speaker is John Beecham, coordinator of Answer Chicago and co-host of Crashing the System podcast. Um, thank you so much for Natalie and Eugene <clears throat> to come out to Chicago to be with us and to speak and to stay within the 15 minutes. I, I appreciate that. I myself am going to uh, respect you and, <clears throat> and stay within the 15 minutes as well. I promise. Um, the first thing I'm going to take a little prerogative as one of the organizers of the conference to not talk about the subject I said I was going to talk about for a second. Um, because I wanted, I'm originally from California. I want to say two things. That clean, that, that clean Air Act that was passed was a result of struggle. There was a massive environmental struggle. In places like where I grew up in Los Angeles, I mean kids for whole, whole, day, whole, whole portions of weeks because the smog was so bad, couldn't even go outside. And if they did go outside, they'd come home and they would, they would, be, they would be, have red eyes that would water for the rest of the night, have a very hard time sleeping. I mean, like this was after the industrial boom. And there was industry in Los Angeles. You know, there was the space industry. Now, there were in industry, the shipyards and everything. And, um, you know, even steel. And, um, you know, the, the, the pollution was so bad that people reacted. And, and they, started a they started a movement and they changed the air there. I mean, when I grew up, it was much, much better. And that was because people struggled and the government was forced. It was also because of the civil rights movement. Because a lot of the things that happened in the late 60s and the early 70s in terms of legislation, which was wide sweeping compared to what it, for people, to, compared to what had ever happened in this country, was all the civil rights movement. Uh, PBS, which was uh, free education for poor and working people, for their kids. Right? That didn't happen before the civil rights movement. It happened because of the civil rights movement. Federal grants for people to go to college and billions of dollars to build community colleges and state universities, uh, that was the civil rights movement. So too, was, so too 
right, was the Clean Air Act. All of these things. So too was Roe v. Wade. I mean, we could go on and on. This was the birth of the first LGBTQ movement that made some traction in this country. They were all combined and they were all related. And all this sweeping change happened around the same time. And it did originate, you know, I mean, you could make a case that the, the labor movement that preceded the civil rights movement certainly had an impact on the civil rights movement. But that labor movement also was very, very, very multinational. And it had to be in order to be so powerful. But the civil rights movement, and we're talking, it was a long time ago now. Well, not a long time ago, historical timeline, but for most people's memory, that's a long time ago. The profound nature of what was happening in this country, right, where people were uniting on a working class basis and won a whole bunch of stuff. Now, most of that stuff is gone. Most of that stuff is gone. And if we're to be honest, the Republicans, you know, the Democrats, Clintons talk about triangulation or some shit like that, whatever that is. But if we're going to talk about triangulation, that meant Republican and Democrat unity. That's where the triangulation was going on. Because the Democrats, and, and this is what I, the only thing I actually wanted to say, because um, Natalie brought up uh, Feinstein. She's a piece of work. You all should Google her, her first campaign ad and her senatorial campaign in, Demo, in, in, in California in the early 90s. And I remember it. You know what it was? She sounded like Trump. She, she literally went down to the border, to the border outside Tijuana, and said, they're coming over the wall illegally. They're bringing their drugs. They're bringing their blah, blah, blah. We have to secure our borders, because this is, this is the beginning of the, the, the repercussions from NAFTA, when a lot of people did come here, because they had no choice. And I don't know. It's a couple, in some cases, a couple miles away from their home and their jobs. Do you know what I mean? But she went down there, it was the Democrats. It was the Democrats that were so much part of that wave, especially in California, especially, and in, 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 in they, they made common cause with like the Republicans in Arizona, for example. They were like saying the same thing. And the truth is, Clinton built, uh, under the Clinton presidency, more wall was built, more fencing was built by far than anybody ever in the history of this country built. And it was built in that anti-immigrant, I mean, you should Google Clinton's uh, Bill Clinton's uh, State of the Union speeches about immigrants too, about immigration too. Bad as Feinstein. It's you know really bad. So my point here is is that there's not even though we're given three separate talks: the environment, racism, and something that I'm supposed to be talking about the war machine. It's all related, and it has to be related. It has to be related. The final piece here, the final point is is we are workers and oppressed people in the United States, but we are workers and oppressed people. And there's, what, almost 8 billion human beings that live on this planet. And the struggle is one that is, has to be waged domestically, but it also has to be waged internationally, and those two struggles have to be absolutely linked. And if we're to be totally honest in the United States, they are not. Right? I mean, people, it's this country absolutely throws down the rulers and the media and the schools and everything, getting all of us to be separate from the rest of humanity. Because they have to. Because this system relies on the exploitation and oppression and domination of the rest of the planet. So they have to get workers and oppressed people here to go along with it. So they use the racism, they use the other stuff, and they say to us, and they, they, they use it like a hammer over our heads, you're American. This is why I never root for the U.S. soccer team, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of a side note, but my, my son's really into soccer now, and 
uh, you know, he plays FIFA, and I'm like, dude, you can't be doing that USA, USA stuff in this house. <laughs> but this is, this is a very important point, because we will not have socialism in the United States, we will not have a revolution, unless workers and oppressed people are won over, are won over, right, to opposing imperialism. It just, it just won't happen. And people, I think, in a certain extent, have every right to be like how with how people how a lot of people in the United States approach the rest of the world how are people actually going to be won over to a position that's necessary right it's because it's necessary and already the population is not a majority for a war if there is a full, well we don't know what's going to happen but if there is a full scale war with iran if there's especially if there's a build up if there's a build up right where there's massive mobilization the chances that there's going to be a large scale anti war movement are, are pretty high now there's other factors you know certainly the government is preparing to be more repressive than perhaps they have been in the past and that might have a chilling effect russia gate has had a huge effect and this is my point about like where people are not what did the ruling class use, what did the Democratic Party and the media, liberal, so-called liberal media principally use against the movement here, right? They used patriotism. They used American exceptionalism. They used the fear of Russia, China, Iran, and Venezuela, right, to come out the people of this country, to come out the people of this country. But here's the thing, if an anti-war movement is possible, an anti-war movement that opposes imperialism as possible. I'll give you an example. When we helped lead the movement against the war in Iraq, I was gonna give a talk about the history of the Soviet Union from today and I just totally sidetracked, but it's okay, it's good. When we helped lead the movement against the, the, the war in Iraq, um, before that, bringing Palestine to an anti-war movement was something you would have to be prepared to literally struggle, throw down for. Like, if you brought a Palestinian flag to an anti-war demonstration, you know, there's a good chance you'd be ostracized. Now, some of you younger folks may not believe this. I mean, I, actually, you, pro you probably don't. Because if you're just like, if you're anti-war, if you're for justice, and you, you're not like, you, you know, you're not raising a Palestinian flag, or you don't have a Palestinian flag that's social, you're like, everybody came here and knows what that is, and like, yeah, that should be there. Right? Right? So, but... That was not the case. That was not the case. So the Answer Coalition with Palestinian groups in the Answer Coalition and allies carried out a principled struggle, but a struggle nonetheless. And even those forces within the anti-war movement that resisted the slogan, end the occupation of Iraq and Palestine, not a difficult slogan, just justice, neighbors, but a lot of the movement resisted it. Those forces now are all on the quote-unquote right side because they have no choice. And it happened because there were millions of people in the street and there was a part of the anti-war movement, which we were part of, that was able to convince and win people over to, like, and, and people got to know Palestinians. There were Palestinian speakers on the stage. I know, you think this is like, what? But it's true. And there's so many examples. There's so many examples. The component of revolutionary socialism is to see things, right, there's, there's 120, 25 of us, 130 of us here, it, it's not 2,000, it's not 3,000, right? The, the, the major component of, of revolutionary socialism is to understand that the necessary things for the majority of the planet 
are always in play once a struggle is undertaken. That people can be convinced of that, right? Like for example, in the, in the example of Russiagate, most workers and oppressed people, right, even though the movement has been squashed, they're not paying attention to that. I mean, it's not deeply seeded into them like Russian hatred. Now, it trickles down, right, or trickles across, and it seeps into everything. There's an assumption that's made. But how deep is that really? Is it really that deep? And I'll give you another example. It, was anybody here alive uh, September 11th? Were you conscious? Do, do, you remember, do you remember going outside and there was no American flags anywhere and there weren't songs on the radio saying, God bless America? What was that one song by the country singer? At least I know I'm free. That shit was everywhere. You go, you go to the store and it's like, at least I know, halftime of the football game, at least I know I'm free. And like, I'm, oh no, good. It's like, I'm glad to be an American, or at least I know I'm free. You know? No, seriously, all over the place. You know how people uh, have the Bears and the Blackhawks flags in their car? Everybody had, I think that's when it got started. The USA flags, like, it was like a parade. Every single day it was like a freaking patriotic, it was 4th of fucking July, every day in this country, right? You know what? Two years later, there was a million people surrounding the White House demanding an end to the Iraq War. In, in 2012, was right, February 2012, right? Or was it 2013? where there was the biggest day of anti-war demonstrations ever in, the, ever, ever in the history of the planet, where you got people in Asia, Africa, Europe, Latin America, did I forget a continent? And here in the United States, like when I, like we were having demonstrations in, where I was in Los Angeles of 50, 100,000, 200,000 every freaking month. Every month, right? So that's a pretty short time, right? And why did that happen? How, how, was the, how was consciousness transformed? Right? Well, it was transformed first and foremost because the Iraqi people uh, resisted, but people were out in the streets even before that. Right? People were out in the streets to resist the war even before that. And, and why did that happen? Well, I mean, usually it's directed at the Republicans but there's no basis for working in oppressed people here to trust the government at all. Why has socialism become popular? Because Eugene has toured the country in a barnstorming thing? I mean, I wish it was true, you know? And convinced everybody that they need to be, that socialism is now good in the United States of America, right? I mean, that's not, that's not how it happened. It happened because there are, the conditions are such that people are susceptible to the idea that the status quo is unacceptable and that an alternative is possible. And the Republicans fucked up. Oh, that's the last cuss word I'll use. They messed up. And what they did, they started calling Obama socialist and everything that was good and progressive socialism. And so people started thinking about socialism. It's, it's often how things happen. The right wing messes up or attacks us or goes too far. And then Bernie Sanders said, I'm a democratic socialist, right? I mean, that's not, that's, you know, that's not a whole lot to get, I mean, what, what you know, was that like a, some earth-shaking revelation people had? Did they go up to the mountain and get the Ten Commandments? You know what I mean? Did, did, did some, like, socialist Jehovah's Witnesses, like, barnstorm? You know? That's not what happened, right? It was the conditions, right? And it was things that happened. It was things that happened that made it possible. And, 
But at this point, at this point, we have to wage a struggle for what I would call, and I don't want to get too, I'm, I'm not trying to say genuine socialism, but I'm saying genuine socialism, right? Which means we are for working and oppressed people having power over society. We are for building a party that can govern in the people's name, in the interest of workers and oppressed people. And in order to do that, we have to impose, this is the only thing I wanted to say, we have to oppose imperialism. We have to teach a science, almost, I don't say a religion, a religion of opposing socialism. You know the last time the United States fought a war that was quote unquote progressive? Some people are gonna think I'm gonna say civil war. Maybe, maybe you weren't thinking that. There hasn't been anything close since then. I mean, you just throw everything off the table. It hasn't been any, anything good for anybody, even people here or people there. But even the Civil War, I mean, the Lincoln administration had to be pushed, nudged, cajoled. They had to start losing before they did it. And it was the 200,000 black soldiers who fought for their right to fight in miserable conditions in the U.S. Army, under racist conditions in the U.S. Army, who risked their own lives, and it was the abolitionist movement that backed them up and filled their ranks, and it was some German Marxists too that came over here and were like soldiers, were like officers in the United States military. Like, we got this is, should be a war about, against slavery. That's who won that war. I'm not even going to give the United. I mean, I, we can. I, I shouldn't go too far, <laughs> but I don't even want to give the United States of America the, the, you know, the credit for that, right? Because what did they do a few short years later? The United States rectified with the, with the white supremacist, right, uh, um, slaveocracy. A slaveocracy, I don't care what they tell you, read their secession documents, they're racist as hell, they're saying we're, we are leaving the country to protect slavery and God has ordained us to lord it over black people and black people should be on plantations and enslaved because the color of their skin and because they are naturally like uh, their skin gives them like they're more climatized towards working in the cotton fields. That was the Confederacy. That's this country. And if they do that here, how can they export anything called democracy or humanitarian, yada, yada? It's not possible. It's not possible. Now, we have to be patient with people when we're trying to explain this. But we also have to be bold. We just have to be like, like racism, sexism, homophobia, no. Imperialism, no. And they're all related. They're all related, and whatever we can do to unite those struggles, we have to, or we're not going to have a revolution here. I believe we are going to have a revolution here in the United States. I believe we are going to have socialism. I believe the fact that more and more people are coming to these conferences, listening to people who say we need to shut down the entire system, is evidence enough. Beyond all the proof I gave, the fact that you all have come out here and made this our biggest Midwest socialism conference, and this is the third year that we've gotten bigger, right? That's, that's actually a very big sign. And this is the last thing I'll say because I already got the year done. So I totally lied. <laughs> you know, it's like when I started doing this, we were recruiting people to Obama, but not started doing, midway through doing this, the revolutionary socialist thing. We were recruiting people with Obama buttons on. Now people are coming to this thing like, uh, you know, I read Lenin and, um, <laughs> you know, there's contradictions there. There's contradictions there, sure, right? Because the struggle is not just about reading. It's about building a party, right? It's, it's about throwing down, and it's about doing, not just throwing down, but doing the things that are necessary to build a type of party, a mass political party, right? Not a party that's doing things in advance of our class, but is with our class and agitating for like what the speakers have done here today, right? To winning people over towards the simple idea that yes, we should have socialism and it means workers and oppressed people being in charge. 
being in charge and having a socialist society and a socialist economy of equality, cooperation, sharing, peace, justice, and love. And everything that working and oppressed people need.